me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 41 today. If you're just joining us, we are working our way through this gospel of Luke. Um, As you're turning there, if you don't have a Bible, there are blue ones in front of you, and our text is on page 950 this morning. As I was saying, we're working our way through this gospel. We'd like to preach um, not just scattershot, jumping all over the Bible, Um, But we like to work systematically through either books at a time or at least large sections so that we kind of get a sense for what the whole counsel of God is telling us. So this morning that finds us in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 41. Hear the word of the Lord. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, They went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is the word of the Lord. Well, our passage this morning is significant because it is the only thing we have recorded about Jesus from the time he was a baby until he was 30 years old. Now, there are other stories about Jesus in his childhood that are recorded in some other documents outside the Bible that were written much later, and these are false and heretical documents. And the stories that you find there, though, about Jesus are quite different from what we see here in Luke. These other stories are much more, what shall we say, entertaining. Let me share a few of my favorites. In one story, Jesus is helping Joseph as a carpenter. Joseph accidentally cuts two boards unequal lengths that need to be the same. Not a problem. Jesus grabs the shorter board and stretches it. Pretty handy if you're a carpenter's son. In another one, Jesus is passing by the workshop of a fabric dyer named Salem. And for whatever reason, as he passes by this dye shop, he gathers up all the clothes she has in there and he dumps them into a big tub of indigo. Salem gets upset and says, You've spoiled them all and ruined my reputation. Each of these was supposed to be a different color. Jesus says, No worries. Just tell me what color you want each one to be, 
And whatever color Salem said, he reaches in, pulls it out, and it was that color. Also very handy. Or here's my personal favorite. Jesus, playing by a little stream, commands the water in the stream to be gathered into little pools. And it does. But there's another little boy. You know, every time you're on a playground, this happens. Another little boy named Annas didn't like that. So Annas takes a stick and he scatters up the pools that Jesus miraculously made. And when he does that, Jesus is furious and he says, and I quote, You insolent, godless dunderhead. You never thought you'd hear dunderhead in church, did you? What harm did the pools in the water do to you? See, now you also shall wither like a tree and shall bear neither leaves nor root nor fruit. And the little boy withers up and dies. Now, the little boy's parents are understandably upset about this. So they come complaining to Joseph and Mary about their dead son. Mary, like a good mother would do, scolds Jesus. You don't do that. So what does Jesus do? Again, I'm pulling this right from the documents. He kicks the boy in the backside and he comes back to life. These are awesome. Now these stories are not true. Let me repeat that. They are not true but they are really entertaining. And by comparison, our story here in Luke 2 about Jesus at the temple, it isn't all that exciting. Or so it seems. I mean, there's no stretching boards, no color-changing cloth, no little boys cursed to death or raised to life. It all seems pretty mundane. And yet, as I said, This is the only recorded story of Jesus from the time the wise men visited to the time his ministry begins, a period of 28 or 29 years. So we've got to ask the question, why this? Why is this here? Why is this the one account that Luke gives us and God gives us? What is it that both Luke as the human author And God, as the divine author, want us to see about Jesus. So that's what we're going to explore this morning. As we do that, here's an outline for you in case you're trying to follow along. That's not an outline, that's just the verses. Ah, there we go. Four sections. We're going to see first the setting, what's going on. Then we'll see the search, the submissive Son of God, and the submissive son of Joseph and Mary. Okay, so that gives you an overview of where we're going. So let's look first at the setting for our story. Look back at verses 41 and 42. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. First, I just want to point out, Pastor Ben mentioned, you know, like, it might seem funny that we always have food at all our meals. It's biblical. This is a feast, okay? So I'm just, that's extra for you. So we're just trying to follow the word here. Second, in the Old Testament, God commanded that all Israelite men were to travel to Jerusalem every year for the Passover. There actually were three feasts that they were supposed to travel for. Um, As time went on and 
people spread out more and more, it actually, the, the custom became reduced to at least the Passover you had to go every year. Now, women weren't required to go. They could go, but they weren't required. So the fact that Joseph and Mary go every year is yet one more way Luke wants us to see this is a faithful, law-keeping Jewish family. They are doing the right things. They are obeying God's word. Remember last week in our passage, three times we were told that Joseph and Mary did what God's word commanded. If you, scroll, if you scan your eyes back up in chapter 2, verse 22, they came for purification according to the law of Moses. Verse 23, they presented Jesus to the Lord as a firstborn as it is written in the law of the Lord. And verse 39, they returned home to Nazareth when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord. Luke wants to make sure we know that even when Jesus was a child, everything, everything about Jesus' life was in accordance with the law. It was perfectly fulfilled. Nothing was overlooked. He didn't step out of bounds once. Everything was done as it should be. Okay, so now that he's 12 years old, Jesus accompanies his parents to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. We don't know if this was the first time. Could have been, it might not have been. But this journey was significant. First of all, this was a long journey. It was like three or four days it probably took them, about 80 miles. And this was a big year for Jesus to attend. Age 13 is when Jewish boys were typically seen as adults. At that time, they became full participants in the religious life of the community. That's when they would officially become what's known as sons of the commandment which is the literal meaning of what Jews today celebrate, bar mitzvah, means the son of the commandment. So the custom was that the year before the son turned 13, age 12, sons would go with their fathers to the feast to learn, to kind of get ready. They would watch and observe how Passover is celebrated. What are the traditions what are the explanations? Why do they do it? What do they do? And they would learn more about the heart of Israel's religion. The heart, meaning as they celebrated this event that marked God's deliverance of his people from slavery. They had to know that story. That was foundational to who they were. They learned about finding refuge under the blood of the Lamb. That's the setting for this crucial event in the life of Jesus. Okay, so that's what's going on. Now, everything, as far as we know, went great. This was a seven-day seven day event. They stayed there. Jesus watched. He learned. We don't know that anything went wrong. But as the celebration wrapped up, a problem arose. Look at verse 43. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. All right, let's pause there. Now, before you get ready to call children's services on Joseph and Mary for neglect, you need to understand what was going on here. It was customary in this time for large groups of people from these faraway villages to go to the feast together. 
kind of a big caravan of folks. And as these large groups traveled, usually what would happen is there would be kind of a couple sections. The men would typically walk together and, you know, catch up on the sports of the day and just do whatever guys talk about. And then the women and the children would be at another section. So they, and they would just kind of walk their own ways until that evening when they'd make camp. Then the families would go find each other, have their little spot. They'd reconnect. So that's what's happening. And so since Jesus is right on that cusp of that border, right? He's, he's what nowadays we'd call a tween. He's, you, some might look at him and say, well, he's kind of a, still a kid. Some say, well, yeah, but he's almost a man. And so it makes total sense how this confusion arose. Mary just assumes, oh, I bet he's with the men. Joseph's probably bringing him along, wants him to learn the ways of the men. While Joseph's thinking, oh, I bet he's with the kids, back with the women and Mary. And it wasn't until they stopped that night and the families gathered together, they realized Jesus is missing. I mean, you can picture this, right? Joseph walks up to Mary, gives her a hug, casually asks, hey, honey, where's Jesus? Mary pulls back from the hug and says, what do you mean, where's Jesus? I thought he was with you. They, they start talking and figure out, like, no, no, he, he was with the women. No, he was with the men. No, then all of a sudden you can just picture it's right out of home alone, right? This is Mary going, Jesus! Well, it's kind of funny, and, you sh- and I think we can laugh at it. If you're a parent and you've ever had that moment of panic, say you lose your child for a little bit in a store or at a park, you can almost feel their panic as they're frantically asking person after person, have you seen Jesus? Is, is he with you? Was he with your son? Oh. And when they realize he's gone, they start and make the trek back to Jerusalem to look for him there. That's where we pick up the story in verse 46. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Let's stop there. So after three stress-filled days, I mean, imagine, it's not just like, it's, it's not three minutes. It's not like, oh, in the store, like, oh, thank you for bringing them back, or you hear them page over the intercom. It's not even three hours. It's three days they eventually find Jesus in the temple of all places. As they come up, he's sitting there among the teachers, listening and asking questions. Now, this was the common way that learning took place in the day. You'd sit at the feet of a rabbi, and there'd be kind of this back and forth. It wasn't a lecture. It was more of a a Socratic method, a back and forth. He The rabbi would ask questions, the students would answer, ask their questions. It was a give and take. And it's important to realize that Jesus isn't teaching here. He doesn't just stand up and he's not schooling the other teachers. He's at their feet. He's learning. He's asking questions. But even as he's learning, the people who heard him engage in this back and forth, they're amazed at his insights. I mean, the questions he's asking. And the, the answers he's giving, these, these are profound. This is impressive. I mean, this would be like a, today a 12-year-old walking up to the Ph.D. professors at Southern Seminary and holding their own as they just chat about the Bible. I mean, this was, this was not typical. 
Now, I'm going to pause here. This is kind of an aside, but I want to pause one second to point something out. Where would you expect to find a 12-year-old? I know I'm kind of reading our context back into theirs, but I mean, if you go look for a 12-year-old, I don't know, maybe a playground, hanging out with friends, checking out the markets. But what's Jesus doing? He's learning as much as he can about God. He's listening. He's asking questions. He's hungry to know everything there is to know about God and his word. And so the question for us this morning is, are we? Are you hungry to know God better? Are you eager to learn all that you can about his word and his ways? If we came looking for you, what would we probably find you doing? What are the chances we'd find you seeking to grow in your relationship with and knowledge of God? See, we're quick to point out how Jesus is our model and our example for things like loving our neighbor, prayer, and hanging out with sinners. But what about his example here of eagerly seeking to learn all that he can about God and his word? How are you doing following him in this way? My prayer for myself and for us is that we would be a people who are often found growing in our relationship and knowledge of God. Aside close, back to our story. Now, as impressive as Jesus' insight was to those who heard him, Mary, as a mother, was a little less impressed by Jesus. Verse 48, And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Mary here has that deeply relieved and yet really exasperated tone only a mother can have, right? She asks, why did you do this? Didn't you know that your father and I have been looking for you everywhere? We were really worried. Now think back to the last time we saw Mary in the temple. It was when they took baby Jesus to be presented to the Lord and Simeon scoops him up and prophesied great things about Jesus, but he also had a word from Mary, if you remember. He said, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. So here, it's possible that we have perhaps the first of many pains that Mary's soul would feel as her son walked the path of obedience. But it won't be the last time Mary is distressed as she misses her son for three days in Jerusalem. Which brings us to the main point of our passage. Look with me at Jesus' answer to Mary in verse 49. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now this simple-looking response is exploding with significance. First of all, these are the earliest recorded words we have of Jesus in terms of his stage of life. This is the only thing we know he said up until age 30. And it's the very first thing Luke records Jesus saying in his gospel. So what would be his first defining 
words. And what we see here in Jesus' words is that he knows both who he is and what he came to do. Think about both these ideas with me. First, Jesus knows who he is. He calls God my father. Now that, that doesn't even register as like a blip on our radar screen. Like, yeah, okay, so what? But this was shocking. No one called God their father. In the Old Testament, there are a, a handful of places where God is referred to as a father, as the father of his people. But never does any one individual dare to take the words, my father, on their lips. And yet, Jesus not only says it here, he'll go on to say it 60 more times we have recorded in the Gospels. In fact, every time you see Jesus pray in the Bible, he addresses God as Father, except once when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why does Jesus dare to say what no one else would say? It's because he knows that he has a unique relationship to God. He is the Son of God. And God is his Father. This is one of the things Luke was wanting to make sure we see. In fact, there's a thread here. There's, it's good to pick up on what is the author? Is he stringing some things together? And I want you to see this thread I think Luke's pulling on here. First, this reality about who Jesus is, this was prophesied back in chapter 1. Remember, Gabriel, the angel, visits Mary, and he tells her that she will give birth to Jesus. And what does the angel say about him? He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. Mary says, how can that be? Holy, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Okay, so we've got this. It's foretold. This, this child's going to be the Son. Now we get to our passage this morning and Jesus is acknowledging, yes, God is my Father. Fast forward a little bit in chapter 3 at Jesus' baptism. What does God declare from heaven? You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And then right after that, Jesus is led into the wilderness and is tempted by the devil. And what does the devil try to get Jesus to question? His identity as God's son. In chapter 4, verse 3, the devil says to Jesus, If you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. Then in chapter 4, verse 9, he takes Jesus to the top of this same temple and says, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. Angels will catch you. It's all centered around, everything's hinging on who Jesus is as the Son of God. But what Jesus knows and what we're meant to see is that he is the Son of God. And as the Son, Jesus is submissive to his Father. He knows why he's come. And what the Father has sent him to do. Now this doesn't jump off the page at you. But where I'm getting this from is where he says, Did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? There's two key things in this sentence. First, you probably have a footnote in your Bible. But the word house 
isn't actually there in the original. It's, it's supplied because it's, it's kind of a, a translation decision, but it's literally, I must be in the things of my father. Now, in this situation, it very well could refer to the temple in this particular setting, but it actually means so much more than I must be at a particular place. Jesus is actually saying, I must be about a particular purpose. What purpose? My Father's purpose for sending me. Now the second thing that's significant in this sentence is that word must. It's a word in Greek that means it's necessary. It has to happen this way. So the question that's raised but left unanswered here is, well, what is the Father's purpose that Jesus must be about? Why did he come? Jesus doesn't say that right here. But Luke is wanting us to start asking that question. And one of the ways that we can answer that question is to see where else Luke records Jesus using this word must. So I want you to listen along with me as we go through the Gospel of Luke and hear from Jesus' own lips what it is he must be about. In Luke 4.43, Jesus announces, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God, for I was sent for this purpose. Okay, so he's been sent to proclaim a message of good news about the kingdom of God. In chapter 9, verse 22, he tells us what that message is. He said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Later, when his opponents are out to get him, some well-meaning people try to get him to leave the area and steer clear of trouble. But Jesus says in chapter 13, verse 33, I must Go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. In other words, he's saying, I must get to Jerusalem to die. In Luke 17, 25, he he tells his disciples, one day he'll come in glory, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Then on the night he was betrayed, he tells his disciples in the upper room in 2237, For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. He was crucified and buried. And then when the women went to the tomb where Jesus was buried, they don't find him, but instead find an angel. And what did the angel say? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. One more. Then when Jesus appeared to his disciples after being raised from the dead, he said, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He goes on, in case you're saying, well, what was written about him? He opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written 
that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Friends, this is the mission God gave his son. He sent him to proclaim good news. More than that, he sent him to be good news for sinners like you and me. He sent him to seek and save the lost, to suffer and die for our sins in our place so that we can be forgiven. Just like we sang earlier, it's out of his deep love for us, the father gave what? His only son to make us wretches his treasure. Think about the context of our passage again. Remember what we said. Jesus has just spent all week hearing thinking about, learning about Passover, hearing about how God delivers his people, about how a lamb must be sacrificed so the people can be spared by his blood. And now he knows he's that lamb. He's that deliverer. He's the ransom. He's the sacrifice. Jesus knew who he was and what he came to do. And what we see over and over again in the different gospel accounts is that as the son of God, he constantly submitted himself to his father's will. He was always in the things of his father. In John 4, 34, Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Like, that's what fills me. That's what fuels me. That's what I do, is whatever he tells me, and to accomplish his work. In John 6, 38, he says, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Over and over and over again, what we see is that Jesus was single-mindedly focused on and committed to the work God gave him to do. Even when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing the horror of what awaited him on the cross. What did he pray? Father, not my will, but yours be done. And that is why as he hung on the cross, he could say in triumph, it is finished. What was finished? His father's purpose. What he came to do. What started as a declaration in the temple at age 12 finished with a victory cry on the cross. And because Jesus finished the work God gave him, guess what? We, sinful people, can now call God our Father. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. We can now sing, now the curse, it has been broken. Jesus paid the price for me. Full the pardon he has offered. Great the welcome that I receive. Boldly I approach my Father, clothed in Jesus' righteousness. There is no more guilt to carry. It was finished upon that cross. So friends, do you know what our main application is this week? I mean, this is a, this is a hard passage. I, I, I wrestled with this one, 
looking at it, trying to figure out what in the world are the takeaways. Here's our main application this week. Behold who Jesus is and what he's done. It took me a while before, this should sound obvious, and you're like, wow, we have a slow preacher. But I'm sitting there banging my head before I realize it's not about what we're supposed to do. It's about what he's done. This passage isn't about us. It's not about me. It's about him. Our main takeaway isn't to mimic Jesus, but to marvel at Jesus. Not to try to be like him, but to behold him. Worship the Son of God who died to save us and rose so that we would be free indeed. But there's two more things Luke wants us to see about Jesus here. Look at verses 50 and 52. And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Okay, so Jesus drops this bombshell in the temple that he's the son of God and that he must be about his father's purposes. But his parents don't get it. Even after they were visited by an angel, there was a miraculous conception Shepherds stopped by to worship their newborn. An old man and an old woman in the temple thank God for sending his salvation when they see their baby boy. Mary and Joseph still don't understand what Jesus means here. They can't grasp the fullness of who he is and what he came to do. And in spite of that lack of understanding, the first thing we need to notice in these verses is what Luke says in verse 51. He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. This is meant to show us that Jesus wasn't disobedient to his parents. Don't get the impression that Jesus staying in the temple was somehow him rebelling against their authority, saying, you can't tell me what to do. I'm going to go to the temple. We know it wasn't that because Jesus never sinned. And even after this incident, even after he knows who he is, the Son of God, and what he came to do, he still goes home and was submissive to his earthly parents. Why? Because that's what his father has commanded in his word. Children should submit to their parents. Even Jesus. We're supposed to see that Jesus lived a life of ongoing obedience to both his heavenly and earthly fathers. He was truly a submissive son. Now, as a side note, I want to make sure you don't miss something here. When we talk about submission in marriage, people start to squirm, get uncomfortable. The idea that wives are, submit to, are to submit to their husbands, people get worked up and think somehow that's denigrating to women. That submission must mean the wife is inferior to the husband. Is that what you're saying? And yet here we see Jesus not only submitting to God, but to Mary and Joseph. As the Son of God, Jesus submits to the very parents he created. What's my point? Submission is not a measure of value or superiority. Because Jesus is in every way superior to Mary and Joseph. 
and yet he submits to them. Why? Because that's the way his father designed the relationship between parents and children to work. Submission to God's design and relationships is a beautiful and noble thing as we see here in Jesus himself, the submissive son. Finally, second thing Luke wants us to see here is in verse 52. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Like, okay, I saw that, but why is that important? Because it shows Jesus was a real man. He increased in stature. It means he had a physical body like ours that grew. I mean, maybe Mary had one of those little boards in the house where she's marking, oh, 10 years old, way to go, Jesus, you're taller. 10 years are probably up here, I don't know. But he grew. Like, don't overlook that. But not only that, he also increased in wisdom. That means Jesus was not omniscient in his human nature. Some of you, this is going to blow your categories. There were things he didn't know. Lots of them. That's why he's in the temple listening and asking questions. Because he was learning. This is important because sometimes we can subtly start to have a wrong view of the incarnation. We think, yes, Jesus had the body of a man just like ours, but he had the mind of God. That's actually an ancient heresy called Apollinarianism. But if you start to think that way, it skews our view of who Jesus is and what he did. He learned the same way you and I learn. He did not come pre-programmed as an infant with the Bible memorized. He didn't start babbling and quoting the Psalms. Like, that's not how it happened. You know how he knew the Bible? He studied. He listened. He asked questions. He meditated. He wasn't a superhero with special mental powers. He was a real man with real limitations on what he knew in his human nature. Why does that matter? Because if Jesus isn't really and fully a man, he can't be our substitute. We needed someone with a nature like ours to take our place. Here's how the Heidelberg Catechism, this old catechism, really helpfully explains it. Question 16, they ask, why must he be a true and righteous man? Answer, he must be a true man because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should pay for sin. And he must be a righteous man because one who himself is a sinner cannot pay for others. So that's why he's got to be like us, not just having hands and feet and a body. He's got to have a mind like ours. He's got to have a nature like ours because only a man can pay for man's sins. But he also had to be God. As the next question explains, why must he also be true God? So that, by the power of his divinity, he might bear the weight of God's anger in his humanity and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. Because only divine power would have the ability to bear the wrath of God. 
So he's got to be a man, but he's got to be God. That's why in Jesus, we have the perfect Savior, fully God, fully man. Or as the Bible says, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. Who is it? The man, Christ Jesus. And as a man, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He was obedient to his parents and fully devoted to his father's purposes. He truly was in every way the submissive son. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise your son this morning. Father, this this blows our minds that you would come up with and give us the perfect salvation in your son. There is no other way. There's no other way that our Savior could be both God and man. We praise you that your son was willing to come so low, to become like us, to feel the limitations of the body with all its aches and pains and scrapes and sicknesses and headaches, but to also feel the limitations of the mind, to not know everything, to be uncertain about what step to take next, to not have the answer to every question. But God, thank you that he showed us what it's like to be a full human, reliant upon the power of the Holy Spirit, to walk in your ways and to do it without sin. God, we thank you that he not only came and lived a sinless life, but then that he died in the place of people like us. That's why you sent him. That's what his whole life's mission was was all leading up to Jerusalem, to the cross, to the empty tomb. We thank you that because he did exactly what you sent him to do, he can say, and we can say with him, it is finished. Would you help us to rest in his finished work for us? And would you let his finished work propel propel us to walk in the good works you've prepared for us as your beloved children. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that we and all God's people pray. Amen.